The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. This is a reading from Selected Verses in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. God said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land of the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> Excuse me, didn't know I was home. <laughs> I'm Brian Salter, one of the pastors here, and I have rolled my sleeves up for this one today. Before we hear the word of the Lord, a few comments. One, I recognize that as we talk about the seventh commandment, we'll be talking about biblical sexuality and there's a diversity of age in the room. There's a podcast that recently we did on Pillar and Ground about talking to your kids, your youngest kids about sexuality. And you may find a follow-up listen to that as helpful as you may encounter questions, having heard the preached word this morning. Also, I am very understanding of the statement that you can't say everything about anything, and if you try, you'll say nothing. So I'm not going to try to say everything today. Uh, however, we did do a series of podcasts on Pillar and Ground on the 12 statements uh, that were made by the PCA in our statement on biblical sexuality. I would also invite you to listen to those that Will and I were able to do. They say a lot more than I'll have time to say today, and I really hope you'll do that. Also, um, if you would like to talk to a pastor or someone about anything you hear today, uh, we can direct you in the way that would give you help and hope, uh, I believe. So as we think about what is going to be said, obviously there will be things you may say, you didn't mention that. What I'm doing today is trusting the Holy Spirit's going to say what he wants to say to us in these next minutes. So let me pray for that. Father, we are trusting that, that this is your word, this is your work. So we ask you to say what you desire to speak to your people. Father, I pray that your spirit would do work that is good and helpful and redeeming and hopeful. And we ask this in your name. Amen. A man named Nick Castro received a call about an insect problem at a California home. This just recently occurred. 
The pest control technician figured that he was on his way to find a dead animal stuck inside the wall, given what he was told about the situation. But when he cut a hole in the wall, he witnessed something he had never seen in more than 20 years in the business. Thousands of acorns began to spill out of the wall. More appeared when he courageously stuck his hand in the hole, and soon he discovered that woodpeckers had stored tens of thousands of acorns in the wall cavity. The acorns he pulled out weighed 700 pounds. I tell you that really interesting news story because I think it's a lot like what it is to study the Ten Commandments. You assume you know what you're getting into. You hear two words in the original, no adultery. Two words in the original, uh, no lying, no murder. And we assume we understand the simplicity of those commandments based on what we hear on the surface. But I think what happens as we dig into the commands is we find something far more weighty, a very heavy weight of sin connected to our law-breaking of God's good gift. And our hope this morning, I want to let you know, is not in a pest control technician named Nick. It's in a Savior named Jesus. And whatever acorns we're about to pull out, whatever weight is about to land upon you, I tell you, we're going to call upon the name of Jesus in this sermon and at the end with hope. So we're going to look this morning at God's gift, our terrible destruction of the gift, and Jesus' cleansing and redeeming work. Let's first look at God's good gift, the goodness of the command. The command's goodness is rooted in two things, God's good gift of marriage. The command is simple to understand in many ways. One shall not break the marriage covenant by uniting sexually with another that is not your spouse. On the surface, that is how we understand that command. But to really understand the command and why it's given, we must go back to the establishment of the biblical marriage covenant because the command is meant to preserve the goodness of what God created. What we will see there is that there is one authoritative designer of marriage, and that design involves, according to Genesis, one man and one woman, and the two become one flesh. Don't take my word for it, but hear Genesis chapter 2. Moses writes, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So as we consider the command, we must go back to that good gift of the one authoritative designer. Before we consider the deviations from the design, we must consider the design. To understand how anything works, you have to go back to understanding how it was made and who made it. To understand life in the messy middle where we live, we have to go back to the beginning. And when we go back there in Genesis, you see one authoritative designer that designed marriage to be between one man and one woman, the two becoming one flesh. You see, our God takes very seriously the cultivation of love inside the family. 
The second table of commands, five through ten, already in the first three, two of them have had to do explicitly with the family. Honor your father and mother, and now do not commit adultery. The relationships of parents and child and the reality of authority and then the reality of covenant relationships. And when you consider God's earnest heart for these things, I would say to all of us, the divine designer has done this and we must not go tampering lightly with divine things. You read the scripture. Watch what happens when people tamper lightly with divine things. We want to handle this biblically and carefully and faithfully. You may say, well, that's good that Moses gave us the thought about the authoritative designer, but what about Jesus? Is that still relevant? When Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, when the Pharisees were seeking to trap him, Jesus affirmed the original design, saying in response to the Pharisees, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus affirms what Moses recorded as the one authoritative design for the biblical gift of marriage. Dale Bruner brilliantly remarks this, indissoluble heterosexual marriage is not a spasm of legalism, but it is the shape of God's created order. This is not a spasm of legalism. This is the shape from the one authoritative designer. Two distinct genders, equal in essence, distinct in function, differentiated and bound in covenant. And so when you hear this command, we must go back to the one authoritative design of one man and one woman bound together in covenant who become what? One flesh. And there you see the introduction to biblical sexuality. After they have come together in covenant, they express that covenant by becoming physically one because they have already declared before God that they will be one. The God-designed aim of sex is oneness, is an expression of oneness already promised before God. Biblical sex is simply the physical depiction of a spiritual and covenantal reality of oneness. God-designed sex is a celebration of a covenant that already exists. Sex does not create love. It is intended to express covenantally promised love. So that's the design. And not only is the command's goodness rooted in God's gift and design of marriage, but it's also rooted in what marriage is intended to reflect according to God. The Bible is explicitly clear that God gave us marriage to be a paradigm for the relationship between Christ and his church. In Ephesians 5, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul, citing Genesis, just as Jesus did. And he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
Isaiah 62, a call to worship I often use in weddings. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Marriage is a, is a shadow of a greater reality. It's pointing us to the original masterpiece of Christ and his church. The theme of covenant relationship of marriage is one of the most important biblical analogies employed in the Bible for describing the covenant relationship with God and his people. Negatively, the prophets will use it to call them away from their wandering, their adulteries, and back to the faithful God. Positively, the prophets will use it to remind us of our faithful God to a faithless people. This is at the heart of God wanting to depict something greater than just marriage itself, and in that it's a good gift. As Ed Clowney helpfully notes, I love this, God did not fish around for some image to use to show his people what his love is like and then stumble on marriage as the best one to convince them to return to covenant devotion. He did not recognize the power of married love and determined to use sexuality as the strongest figure. No, God planned it the other way around. Trinitarian love exists perfectly for all time. And he said, how could I display that? And it's in the gift of marriage. And so when you see the goodness of the gift in God's design and in God's intent to reflect, now we understand the importance of the command because God is very serious to say we must not distort or desecrate the reflection. Sexual sin is first and foremost desecration of the masterpiece of a holy God. And that's what would lead David in Psalm 51 to say, against you and you only have I sinned. Not because he didn't sin against anybody else. Because he recognized sexual sin is always primarily a desecration against a holy purpose. So seeing that good gift and that intent of reflection, consider the vastness of our failure and our fight to keep this commandment. As with all the commandments, the scope of the commandment is far broader and wider and deeper than we will realize at first consideration. Jesus makes that clear in Matthew 5, 27 through 28. That this commandment is not strictly forbidding an act, but as the Heidelberg Catechism says, it is forbidding anything that incites unchastity, whether by actions, looks, talks, thoughts, or deeds. So Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Hear me clearly. The seventh commandment, when understood according to Jesus, forbids any and all Sexual activity, whether in thought, word, or deed, that violates the covenant of marriage. I crafted that very carefully. Because that summary can include biblical sex, or that summary can include sexual sin inside of marriage that violates the covenant of marriage. 
Jesus forbids any and all sexual activity, whether in thought, word, or deed, that violates the covenant of marriage. So that includes any kind of sexual behavior, thought, talk, desire, outside of male and female marriage, whether that is same-sex or heterosexual. Whatever, it is sinful. Any sexual behavior, thought, look, talk, desire outside of male-female marriage is sin. But please note, as I just mentioned, there can be sexual behavior inside of male-female marriage that is also not blessed by God and is also sin. Sexual entitlement, sadly propagated by the church in many ways, says that men have the right to sex. And that leads to all sorts of sexual manipulation and abuse inside of male-female marriage. That is a violation of this commandment. Sexual manipulation is a use of sex as power. Sexual abuse, when you use sex to exert power to harm, these are all sins. And they can and sadly do occur in marriages and outside. And here's the bottom line. Sex is a gift. It is never a right. Sex is a gift. It is never a right. It is a gift that must be stewarded to God's design. Some would argue even as we talk about same-sex desire or homosexuality that actually Jesus, when we think about the scope of this command, never mentioned homosexuality. But I'd like to point out that in Matthew 15, he calls all sexual sin outside of the covenant of marriage, shorthand with a word, porneia, he calls it sin. And then in Matthew 19, as we've already heard, he defines marriage according to how Moses defined it between a male and a female. So he actually speaks quite directly to it. You see, Jesus has included heterosexual and homosexual thought Desire, action outside of biblical marriage covenant within the scope of the seventh commandment. And you really want to know the scope of the seventh commandment? It's even bigger than all that. Do you know you never sin without breaking the seventh commandment? Because all sin is unfaithfulness to God, all sin is a rejecting of your lover, your beloved bridegroom you start to see that now we begin to be able to relate to sexual sin and struggle with humility and repentance and confession so we consider the vastness of our failure and fight let's consider even further now that we've heard the scope the vastness of our failure I would imagine is maybe painfully clear I'd like to ask a few questions. What husband has not looked on another woman and lusted? What wife has not thought, why did God give me this husband? I would have been happier with another. What person, male or female, has not dreamed of using his or her body to impress or to manipulate people? What person has not looked upon another person as a commodity rather than a human being? What person has not imagined in their heart lustful thoughts 
What single has not been tempted to idolize finding that final married partner? Do you see we're all sexual sinners? Our failure to keep this commandment is in the heart. Matthew 15, Jesus says, for out of the heart comes, like we saw last week, murder, but then he says adultery. That's what defiles a person. And listen, all you have to do is read Leviticus 18 and the first letter to the Corinthians to realize this is a human problem. We're, we're not, this is not like an unparalleled moment in the history of the world with our current sexual struggle. You read Leviticus 18 and you read 1 Corinthians and you go, oh, the problem is the human heart. The human heart takes God's good gift and distorts it and pollutes it and ruins it. But I would say this, our times are unique. Our times are unique in that this is true. Sex has become a transcendent thing that people believe they absolutely have to have to be happy. Tim Keller points out that this was not true for the Greeks and Romans. In those times, sex was merely an act or a practice or a pleasure. But listen to this. It was never a hope. It was never a right. And in those moments, it was never an identity. That's where we live. Sex has become a hope, a right, and an identity. And it's no wonder we are facing the collapse. Because God's design is a gift of an expression of oneness to reflect the love of Christ in the church inside of marriage. Sadly, the church, even further, has propagated even these very things. That sex is a hope by somehow communicating that you must be married. That sex is a right with, as I mentioned earlier, sexual entitlement. Sex is an identity. Again, acting like you have to have it to be happy. Our distortions and our perversions are vast. And I want to spend some time talking particularly about one particular fight that I could not shake this week as I sought to speak and preach, and I thought, that's, that's, God hasn't changed it, so I'm going to bring it. I believe our most severe, poisonous, and threatening battleground in this present moment is pornography. In the age of technology, the internet, and the smartphone, as Kent Hughes notes, pornography has never been so accessible anonymous or affordable. 2010 and 2016 research showed the pornographic industry outperforms every major league sport. According to research in 2016, worldwide pornography revenues were more than the combined revenues of Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, and Netflix. Pornography is a lethal infection, not in the culture, right here in the church. The Puritan Thomas Rotson was right to say that pornographic pictures secretly convey poison to the heart. I think seeing pornography not as merely wrong but poisonous can become a helpful thing. 
One of my favorite football coaches, Irk Russell, coached down at Georgia Southern, coached the University of Georgia. The mid-80s during the cocaine epidemic, he gathered his team and he locked the door and one of the assistant coaches brought in a small box and with a stick he opened the box and a rattlesnake came out. And every player in that room hit the walls and climbed on top of one another. And he said, when you see cocaine, I want you to act like that. When you're tempted to pornography, I want you to see it as a rattlesnake. I want you to see it as poison. God wants us to see it. Why? It is poisonous because it is lethal, because it denigrates women. It objectifies humans. It damages relationships. It destroys spirituality. And it eliminates and factors out God out of your life. The use and experience of pornography unhinged has made us unhinged from the biblical design and God's perfect purpose, and people are becoming a vehicle for self-pleasure. Thus, objectification and commodification, or they're becoming an obstacle to self-pleasure, thus the rise of sexual abuse. I'm, I'm not stupid about a room like this and the use of pornography. Today's a day to renew our fight. We're going to talk about how in a moment, but this has lethal consequences on the home, on the church, on our view of humanity. It is a rattlesnake. It is deadly. And it is poisonous. We all, though, stand in need of God's grace for sexual sin and temptation. That is bad news. I understand what I've given you, the vastness of our failure, the scope, the realities. But I want us to hear from the Westminster Confession that no sin is so small that it does not deserve damnation, nor is any sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. I've given you the good news of a gift. I've delivered the bad news of our destruction. I want to give you the good news of the gospel. Because as I sat one of my sons down at Dairy Queen to have that initial how things work over a blizzard, there was a mustard bottle there, and I asked my son what would happen if I used this as a hammer. And he said, you'd make a mess. Absolutely right. You know that's what's happened. We've taken God's design, and we've used it in a way that it wasn't designed for, and we got a mess. Maybe today you're really acquainted with the mess in your own life, the mess in your own heart. I want to tell you about the faithfulness of God to faithless people in His Son. Jesus is clean. He's perfectly pure. And He was willing to be treated as dirty so that filthy, stained, messy, sexual sinners like us might be cleansed. Jesus was defiled to free us from our defiled status and our feelings. And part of sexual sin is it can be so secretive. And secretive sin only increases shame and a sense of being dirty and defiled and contaminated. And that subjective feeling, if you failed or been ruined sexually in some way, 
You have to bring it. The only hope you have is to bring it under the objective truth that there is a Savior who cleanses dirty sinners with His blood. And that that is more true than your subjective feelings of shame. And that Titus 3, 4 through 7 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy. He, and I am emotional today because I know the stories and I know the pain, not of all, but of many. And I long For us to know the liberating freedom and cleansing and the light of Jesus in the midst of this deep struggle and gross place we find ourselves. There's a Redeemer, and with His blood, He cleanses the foulest the thing you think you couldn't be forgiven for, the committed adultery, the thing you did on the screen last night, the abuse you committed, the abuse you endured, there is a Redeemer. And He kept the seventh commandment completely. He is pure. He is clean. He gives you His record because He took the filth of the cross he took our shame. Sexual, sexual sin is so tied to shame. You feel so dirty. That's why David, when he prayed in Psalm 51, what did he pray for? Wash me. Cleanse me. Do you need cleansing? Maybe even you've professed with your mouth that you believe Jesus, but you've actually never really experienced the loving cleansing of Jesus. Please come to the free cleansing waters of Jesus. There is hope to change. The faithfulness of God and the gift of the Holy Spirit provides power for the fight. 1 Corinthians 6 talks about the battle of sexual immorality and it takes you all the way to this. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you know how Jesus transformed the law? He gave us the Spirit. Because the law was good but powerless. And guess what? Jesus says, I'm putting my Spirit in you and you now have power to keep the law. You now have power to purify yourself. You are cleansed and you have power. But the power of the Spirit can be squelched if you remain in secret. Don't tell everyone everything. That's called stupidity. But you better find somebody that you can say, I'm in need of forgiveness. Do you know it's easier to confess to God than to a real human person? Because you can't see Him and you can fake it. But you look in the eyeballs of somebody and say, I want power to change. God's given us his spirit to come out of the secrecy and to find hope. I aim this as I end two places. To the struggler, 
to the wanderer. Would you this morning see Jesus? Would you see him in John 4 at the well with the sexual sinful woman? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Don't run from him. Draw near to him. When you get near him, he'll tell you everything you've ever did and and you'll feel loved. (laughs) You'll feel cleansed. And to the brokenhearted, you hear this sermon and you're so troubled by the sin in your past or even in your present. Perhaps you're so brokenhearted by the ways you've been sinned against with betrayal or abuse or harm. All of us in some ways are brokenhearted over sexual sin. And I'd like to invite us to hear the call of comfort and solace of the beauty, wonder, and goodness of God's love. Any joy of being one flesh in sexual union ceases with age and will not endure through eternity. And that's why none of that love can actually satisfy your heart. But there is the love of Jesus for his bride that will never end. You know what will purify your heart? The love of Jesus. It's that love that will change us. And when failed by all other lovers, that love will allow you to endure, to heal. So would you this day bask in and delight in the eternal and faithful love of Jesus for faithful people and know that we are heading to a wedding the bridegroom will be faithful to his faithless bride. And he will woo our hearts and help us till we get home. Let's pray. Our heavenly bridegroom, you show us your steadfast, unchanging, strong love. Thank you, Jesus, for pursuing us when we wander from you. You've bound yourself to us with an everlasting covenant, and yet our hearts and our relationships are so unaffected by your loyal love. Would you renew our hearts? Would you give us grace? Would you set us free today? Would you kill secrecy and set captives free? Thank you for forgiving, for being faithful to faithless, sexual, broken sinners. Cleanse us and set us free, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.